This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, from business to history, and everything in between. And, of course, we're always looking for your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And this next story, well, I heard it quite a long time ago. And it's Randall Wallace at the 59th National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C. And you're thinking, Randall Wallace, never heard of him. Well, he won Best Picture for a screenplay he wrote in 1995, and that screenplay was Braveheart. He was a co-writer on Secretariat and We Were Soldiers. He also directed those two movies, and they're gem. Really, really beautiful films. A family can watch them. You can watch them again and again and again. They're not simple, but they're filled with grace. And Randall delivered this keynote address. And here is how he started things. Movies are arguably America's most influential export. But guys like me aren't the natural choice to speak at a prayer breakfast. When I was directing We Were Soldiers down at Fort Benning, Georgia, I found time one morning to drive over to visit former President Carter's Sunday school class at his home church in Plains. I asked a friend who knew the Carters to save me a seat, and when I arrived, I found the seat was right next to Rosalind Carter. Apparently, Mrs. Carter, the gracious Southern lady that she is, wanted to be sure I felt at home. So I sat down next to Mrs. Carter, and Mr. Carter from the pulpit asked the congregation to open their pew Bibles to the passage that would be his subject for the day. Now, I grew up in Baptist churches. I was really familiar with that passage. So I decided to take advantage of that time to look at the hymn book for the words of a hymn I was thinking of using in the movie that I was directing. So as I was thumbing through the hymn book and everyone else was looking for the passage, someone touched my arm, and it was Mrs. Carter, and she handed me her Bible open to the proper passage. And I I realized in that moment that Mrs. Carter had decided that since I was a Hollywood filmmaker, I didn't know the difference between a prayer book and a Bible. It also occurred to me that I had the perfect chance to steal Mrs. Carter's Bible. I mean, if I walked out with it and someone stopped me, I'd say, she gave it to me. And she'd have to say, well, I guess I did. And and it was a beautiful Bible, too. It was was worn with her own hands. It It was marked with the joy and the tears of the First Lady. Imagine what it would bring on eBay. Um, to prepare myself for this morning I've studied the the speeches of those who've gone before me at this podium they've advocated causes that are vital and I can't compete with their accomplishments or their eloquence so this morning I thought we'd do something that as nearly as I can tell is unprecedented for a keynote address at the National Prayer Breakfast. I thought we'd talk about prayer. (laughs) Now, I'm no philosopher. I'm not a preacher. 
I'm a storyteller, like Jesus. As nearly as I can tell, that's my only similarity to him. <laughs> Except for one other thing. I, too, have cried out, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I've lived a life of tremendous privilege. I, was, I grew up right down the road from here in Lynchburg, Virginia. Now, Virginians are righteous and sober people, too proud to tell a lie. But I was born in Tennessee. <laughs> My father was born in Lizard Lick, Tennessee. The men in my father's family are Alton, Elton, Dalton, Lyman, Gleeman, Herman, Thurman, and Clyde. They, they called Clyde Pete, and nobody knew why. When I was a child, I suffered from asthma. I had attacks so severe I couldn't breathe at all. And I felt that if I panicked, I would die. And my grandmother would hold me upright in her arms all night long, and she would sing to me. And she would she'd tell me stories from the Bible or from her childhood. And to me, they seemed one and the same. And she'd look into my eyes, and she would smile. And, and I don't see blue eyes to this day without seeing hers. As I grew older, I found her looking at me in a different way. And uh, I said, Grandmother, why are you looking at me like that? And she said, well, you remind me of Ruth. Ruth was her husband, my grandfather. Uh, he died before I was born. So I really wanted to know about him, and I asked my father to tell me what he was like. And my father told me this story. And when we come back, we're going to hear this story and more. And again, we're listening to Randall Wallace. And my goodness, he's written some gems, some classics, American classics. And this is Randy Wallace actually telling one of the finest stories he's ever told about his own life, about his own faith walk, and about prayer. So when we return, a writer's story here on Our American Story. return to Our American Stories and to Randall Wallace telling his family's story about faith and prayer at the National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C. some years ago. 
And when we left off, Randall's father was about to tell him the story of his grandfather, who had died before Randall was born. During the Great Depression, my grandfather, who was a farmer, decided to build a country store to help feed his family. And there was no money and there was no wood, no wood to be had anywhere, but he found the wreck of a riverboat on the Tennessee River. And he salvaged that wood and he used that wood to build his store. But then he needed stock to sell in the store. And the one place in town that paid cash for labor was the plant where they froze huge blocks of ice. And men with tongs would grab these blocks of ice and sling them up onto wagons so that they could sell them to the farmers whose homes had no electricity. My grandfather was the only white man that took that job. All the rest were what they then called colored men. So his first day on the job, the supervisor, who was also white, came up to my grandfather and he said, now listen, I just want you to know that you and I are the only white men here. All the rest are colored men. So I cuss at him. If I forget myself and I call you an SOB, don't pay me no mind. I don't mean nothing by it. It's just the way I am. And my grandfather, who is a 6'3 and weighed 245 pounds, looked at this man and said, I understand completely. And I just want you to know that if you forget yourself and you call me an SOB and I hit you in the face with a claw hammer, don't pay me no mind. I don't mean nothing by it. It's just the way I am. And in that one story, I understood everything about who my grandfather was and who I wanted to be. And I understood the power of a story. And my mother and father worked hard so that my sister and I could go to college. It was something my parents had never had a chance to do. It was impossible for them after World War II. My father was a salesman who loved his customers. And he won promotion after promotion until one day the company he had worked for for 20 years, a family-owned business, was sold to a group of investors who knew nothing about the business. But they believed the way to increase profits was to fire all the old guys and hire younger ones who were cheaper. And my father was one of the old ones. He was 38 years old. Now, I always believed that my father had lived his life wanting to please the father he had never had. His father had died before he was born. The grandfather he had told me about was my mother's father, not his. He had never been fired from anything. He was the best and the bravest man I ever knew. And he came apart. While he was in the hospital, my sister and I were farmed out to relatives. At one point, we lived in a house that had no indoor plumbing. When I told my father about that, he said, well, rich people have a canopy over their beds. I guess we've got a canopy under ours. <laughs> and that's when I knew my daddy would be all right.
the last sale he made for the company that fired him was for ninety thousand dollars that was in 1961 the first sale he made when he came out of the hospital was for ninety cents he worked a hundred hours a week he clawed his way back to tremendous success God bless America. God bless my daddy. He told me I could go to college anywhere I wanted, and I chose the most expensive place possible. And he was so proud. But when I graduated, I didn't want to be a doctor or a lawyer. I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to tell the kind of story that would let a young man know who his ancestors were and who he might be. The kind of story that would keep a child alive through a lonely night. My first job was in Nashville, working at a theme park, managing a show that featured live animals who played musical instruments. I'm not making this up. I had a piano-playing pig named Pigarachi. I had a drum-playing duck named Bert Backquack. You can imagine how proud my parents were. But I kept writing. I moved to Los Angeles. I found an opportunity in television. I married, had two beautiful sons. I had purpose in my life, and I worked the way I'd seen my father work, with pride and with passion. I won a multi-year contract for employment. We bought an old house and remodeled it to be the family home. I was promoted to producer, and except for an occasional mishap with my tie, life was sweet. And then the Writers Guild went out on strike, and that caused the thriving company that I was working for to void my contract. And the strike went on forever. And when it was over, I had no savings and no job and nobody would return my phone calls. I'm sure that's never happened where you've worked. And one day, I mean, I kept trying. I was always good at trying. But I was sitting at my desk, and I was staring at nothing, and I had a knot in my stomach, and I looked down at my hands, and they were trembling, and I realized I was breaking down the way my father had. And I was afraid that I was betraying my father and my mother, and my grandmother, and my grandfather. And my greatest fear of all was that I was going to let down my sons. So I got down on my knees. I had nowhere else to go. And I prayed a simple prayer. I said, Lord, 
What I really care about right now, what really matters to me, are those boys. And maybe they don't need to grow up in a great big house with a swimming pool and a lot of bathrooms. Maybe they need to grow up in a little house with one bathroom or no bathrooms at all. Maybe they need to see what a man does when he gets knocked down, the way my father showed me. And if that's what's best for them, then I pray you let me take it. But I pray if I go down in this fight, then I not do it on my knees to someone else. But standing up with my flag flying. I got up and I wrote the words that led to Braveheart. And what a heck of a story, folks. And what things were covered here. What he learned about his grandfather. You know, that one line back. Don't pay me no mind. I don't mean nothing by it. It's just the way I am. That grandfather saying that back to that guy who said, I'm going to call you an SOB. And his grandfather saying, you call me an SOB, I'm going to punch you in the face. All due respect. And he'd never met his grandfather, but that one story, it told the whole story of the man, his character, his nature. And by the way, that boy wanted to be like that man. And this is the power of stories. It's why we tell them here on this show. It's the imitative power of stories and heroes. It's the most important thing in life. And when we come back, we're going to hear the rest of this remarkable speech. And it's Randall Wallace's real-life story, raw, uncensored, and beautifully put together and crafted. I'm sure he spent as much time writing this as almost anything he'd ever written. National Prayer Breakfast, Randall Wallace, the rest of the story here on Our American Stories. been listening to Hollywood screenwriter and director Randall Wallace deliver the keynote speech from the 2011 National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C. And what a speech this is. And I had just recalled it recently, and that's the great thing about this show. Who cares if it happened yesterday or the day before? Randall had thus far shared with us his life story from his family sacrificing everything to put him through the best schools, landing a dream job in Hollywood only to lose everything. And in his deepest, darkest moments, he finds the inspiration from the Lord to write Braveheart. Here's the rest of the story. Great writers like uh, Robert Frost and Jane Austen have said that an ending that does not surprise the writer won't surprise the reader when I wrote about William Wallace standing on the battlefield ready to die for what he believed I felt it and when I came to the end I wept now was that moment of prayer 
the single pivotal moment in the entire arc of my life? Of course not. My professor and mentor in college, the great Thomas Langford of Duke University, once told our class, there's no great decision in our lives that stands alone. The trajectory of every other decision we've ever made points our way to the future. Our lives are unfolding stories. They are moving pictures. If we took a freeze frame of Golgotha on the day that Jesus was crucified and asked someone unfamiliar with the story to guess who was the victor in that scene, they'd be unlikely to say the one hanging on the cross in the middle. It was from that cross that Jesus cried, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that cry does not amaze me. What does amaze me is that while one of the thieves crucified next to Jesus mocked him, the other acknowledged the justice of his punishment and asked Jesus for help. And in the agonies of the crucifixion, Jesus was able to say, today you'll be with me in paradise. It seems to me that Jesus' response to that thief was not just the answer to that thief's prayer at the moment. It was the answer to every prayer that thief never prayed. If God is God at all, God hears our prayers whether we pray them or not. So why pray at all? Well, for me, it's not because God needs to know my prayers. It's because I do. Prayer sifts our souls like sand. Take any moment in life. Take this one. Here in a room resonant with power. Did we come this morning because we want to feel closer to that power? Do we go before God because what we want to do is use the power, the ultimate power we imagine that God has? Or do we get down on our knees to acknowledge the truth of our weakness, to rise again in the strength of that truth? Jesus said the truth will make us free. He also said the truth is God is love. And it is the prayer that comes from love. That's the prayer that goes to God. My father once told me a story of a man who was drowning in the ocean. He cried out, oh God, if you save me, I'll spend the rest of my life in your service. And a moment later, a boat came out of the fog and dragged him from the waves. And on the way back to the shore, the man lifted his eyes to heaven and said, of course, you understand I mean in an advisory capacity. <laughs> Life does not give us the option of advisory capacity. Tolstoy wrote in War and Peace that in a battle, one man throwing down his weapon and running away can panic the whole army. And in a panic, one man snatching up the battle flag and running back toward the enemy can rally a whole army, and no one but God knows what will happen and when. 
What if prayer is a way to glimpse God's true intentions, the divine purpose for each of us? I'm not a theologian. I'm not looking for logic. I'm only trying to understand my experience that prayer matters. Does it change the mind of God? I don't know. All I can tell you is that it changes me. When I was a boy, we sang a hymn, Footsteps of Jesus. Not everyone grew up singing that hymn. I'm sometimes thought of as a rarity in Hollywood, a filmmaker who would speak freely about faith, about prayer. But in reality, I'm not so rare. All of my fellow dreamers know too well the fleeting nature of beauty, the falseness of fame, the pettiness of power. And when I pray with or for my friends, my first concern isn't whether they are the followers of the footsteps of Jesus, but whether I am. And if I've led you to believe that I'm any example of righteousness, then maybe you're just not familiar with our Tennessee talent for stretching the truth. Because <laughs> even if I could have stolen Mrs. Carter's Bible, I couldn't have kept it. You can own the pages, but you don't own the Bible till you've lived it. Some of you here lead nations. Some of you here lead the world. All of us here have one heart inside us. And it's within that one heart where the whole battle is fought. There's many ways to deal with the ultimate questions of God as there are people on the planet Earth. But every one of us must stand alone before all that made us and all that we have been and all that we might be. And dying in your bed many years from now, would you not trade all the days from that day to this for one chance, just one chance, to come back here and open your heart before God Almighty and say, I will lose my life and I will win it in loving in all the ways you lead my heart to love. You have a prayer. Pray it. Amen. And you've been listening to Randall Wallace. And again, that's the National Prayer Breakfast. And you can just Google that. National Prayer Breakfast and Randall Wallace and watch it. Send the link to friends. Send this link to friends. Randall Wallace's National Prayer Breakfast. We'd love to hear your favorite prayer, a prayer that changed your life, prayer in your life and how it's helped you, healed you. Send them to Our American Stories and you can do that by going to ouramericannetwork.org. And if you have a favorite prayer, send it to us. It's such a fundamental part of our lives. No one talks about it, and we should. And so many of us, it's that moment alone where no one else, no one else is editing, no one else is listening, and we just open ourselves up to a higher power and speak 
Well, we just about have to speak what we really feel. Randall Wallace's story, his father's story, his grandfather's story, a story of prayer and faith in action. This is Our American Story. continue with our American stories, and we continue with stories we've been telling for quite some time now with author Tim Harford, and his book is 50 Inventions That Shaped the Modern Economy, and we've been covering a whole bunch of them over several installments, and you can go to Our American Network to catch a bunch of them, and ultimately we're going to have about a dozen of them up on the air, and today we're talking about a particular company that everyone knows now. But we're talking about an innovation within that company, and we're talking about the iPhone. The iPhone has a very interesting lesson for us, I think. I mean, I don't need to tell you how it changed the economy. And, and, and of course, all the clones that came along, Google's um, Android phones as well. Um, I don't need to tell you how they changed the economy, but I think where they came from is a very interesting lesson. So this argument is made by an economist called Mariana Mazzucato. And she says, look, what is, what is in an iPhone? You've got a touchscreen. You've got the solid-state hard drive. You've, you've got the, um, the computer chips. You've got algorithms, particularly algorithms that convert digital to analog and analog to digital. You've got GPS. You've, you've got access to the Internet. You've got the cell phone structure. You've got all of that going on. Okay. These are the building blocks that Steve Jobs put together to make this amazing invention. So who invented the building blocks? And when you look at the history of it, very often they came from governments, um, very often the American government, very often the American military, although not always. For example, the touchscreen is a um, British government invention. It was, it was invented uh, at the Royal Radar Establishment. Um, so you look at all these different inventions, and, and they all have these these government or military origins, which is very striking um, because a lot of people, myself included, like to sing the praises of you know, private sector innovation, the power of the entrepreneur, the, the creativity of the free market. I'm, I'm all for that. I, I believe in that. But we also have to look at the facts. And in this particular fact, a lot of these building blocks came from governments. They were put together by brilliant entrepreneur Steve Jobs, but he would not have had the raw material to work with. He would just have been making a clever toy if he hadn't had these different uh, inventions. Even Siri was designed originally for fighter pilots and eventually became repurposed for smartphones. So it's a lesson about how sometimes the, um, the origins of these amazing inventions that shape the world around us. They're not always the origins we expect. They weren't always produced by the people who get most of the credit. You know, Tim, speaking of things that have their origins in the military, talk about radar. Uh, well, yes, radar. Originally, the idea was 
couple of British scientists during the Second World War, we're going to create a death ray. We're going to use electromagnetic radiation to create this beam that will heat eight pints of liquid, i.e. blood, um, above whatever, 105 degrees Fahrenheit, enough to make a pilot of a, of a plane pass out. And we're going to sort of knock planes out of, the, out of the sky using our death ray. And the two scientists discussing this idea very quickly realized there's no way. We, we don't have the power. We don't have the range. It can't be done. But we could use electromagnetic waves to, um, to bounce off planes. And we could interrogate the signals that come back. And we could use that to track incoming planes. And this is a hugely important development uh, in the Second World War because it meant for, for Britain, as these German bombers came over high and fast attacking British cit uh, cities, we could see them coming and we could scramble a response and we could actually intercept them. So, it, I mean, it changed the course of the Second World War and then various developments uh, that made radars uh, more powerful, more compact. You could put them in submarines. You could put them in aeroplanes. Um, you could use them all over the battlefield. Uh, a really, real um, war-winning effort. But on top of that, of course, once you've got that military technology, you've got a technology that makes civilian airspace a lot safer. And initially, those early civilian flights it was just a case of, well, you, you plot your course on the map and you fly from one airport to another and keep, keep away from clouds and hopefully you won't crash into another plane. And, and there was a tragic crash over the Grand Canyon, two, two planes both trying to give their passengers a view over the Grand Canyon. They hit each other, uh, terrible loss of life. And at that point, people started saying, you know what, we've got this technology, we could use it to track where all the planes are to run a kind of air, air traffic control system and to keep everyone safe. And ever since then, uh, air travel has been getting safer and safer and safer, famously safe, no matter how dangerous it may seem when, you, when you're up there in one of those, uh, those thin tubes. And it is partly because of radar. Indeed. And if I could, Tim, TV dinners has to be the way we close. Uh, okay. uh, uh, inauspicious, but it's here and it's funny. It is funny. I, I, it was originally going to be the washing machine. You might be thinking, well, what's the connection between the TV dinner and the washing machine? Well, lots of people said, you have to do the washing machine because the, the washing machine liberated housewives. Women who could be going out to work for money, getting economic independence, uh, getting experience at the workplace, fully contributing to society. And there they are, they're stuck at home doing the laundry. And I, I wanted to write that story. I thought it was a great story. But when I looked at the, the actual data, and I looked at the research that people had done, I found washing machines did not save women any time. What happened was, instead of doing you know, one wash a month, you'd do one wash a day. And um, we, we all looked a lot cleaner and smelt a lot cleaner, but it didn't actually save the housewives who unfortunately were the ones having to take responsibility for this, didn't save them any time. Um, the TV dinner, on the other hand, did. And by TV dinner, I mean not just the thing in an aluminium tray that you would warm up and sit there with, your, you know, with it in your lap, but all of the other technologies by which food was industrialized. So the idea that rather than plucking your own chicken, the chicken's pre-plucked, and indeed maybe it's 
it's pre-seasoned and pre-stuffed. And actually, if you go to a deli, uh, maybe it's also pre-cooked. The other whole thing's ready to eat. So um, uh, crisps, uh, sorry, you guys, we call them crisps. You guys call them <laughs> potato chips. Yeah. You think about potato chips. Um, to prepare fresh potato chips, to finely slice all the potatoes and to heat up the hot oil and, and all the mess and the risk of animals and to fry them... Huge, huge amount of time and effort. But you can buy potato chips in a bag. Uh, Take seconds. You can eat them anywhere. Um, uh, Pre-chopped salads. You don't need to chop your own salad. You don't need to wash your own lettuce. The salad's there in a bag. All of these different technologies, frozen meals, takeaway pizza, the whole lot, all of this save women an enormous amount of time. We we couldn't... we had the pre, before we had this technology, women had to prepare. And it always was the women had to prepare every meal, tidy up after every meal. They were literally spending hours every day putting food on the table, literally putting food on the table. And when the TV dinner and all these other technologies came along, that suddenly liberated women to go out into the workforce, to earn a living, to gain their independence if that's what they wanted to do in a way that. People say the washing machine did, but I'm afraid it never did. And I'll close with this. The industrialization of food freed women from hours of domestic chores, removing a large obstacle to their adopting serious professional careers. But by making empty calories ever more convenient, it also freed our waistlines to expand. Six decades after the launch of the TV dinner, the challenge now, as with so many inventions, is to enjoy the benefit without also suffering the cost. Talk about that, Tim. So many of these inventions are, have created things that we should be very grateful for, enormously grateful for. But many of them do have side effects, unintended consequences, disadvantages. And so there's always a temptation to say, oh, well, you know, we should never have invented that. We should never have that. If only we could turn the clock back. But we can never turn the clock back. We, we can't put the invention genie back in the bottle. So with all of these inventions, we're always asking ourselves, we should be asking ourselves, what can we do to enjoy, as I wrote in that passage, what can we do to enjoy the benefits um, without the costs? And sometimes that's a matter for for government rules. Sometimes that's a matter for a community to get together and, and agree, well, this is this is how we drive in this town. This is how we behave. And sometimes it's a matter for individuals. What am I going to do to make sure I don't waste too much time on my smartphone? What am I going to do to make sure I'm not tempted to snack and I, I don't, don't become obese and it harm my health and my self-esteem? Um, but we always need to be thinking about it. Um, technologies never just solve problems. They always create some problems as well. And so there's, there's always an opportunity for us to do better. And we've been listening to Tim Harford, author of 50 Inventions That Shape the Modern Economy. And go to Amazon.com and pick this terrific book up. It's just chock full of stories, and they're short stories. You can read one and wait a few days, read another. They're not interconnected. They're not interrelated. But you get the story of modern life and the beginning of modern culture and the industrial world. And my goodness, all of these inventions indeed Ones you'd never really think about. My goodness, the the TV dinner I just would have never thought about as including in the list. And I couldn't stop reading the chapter. Again, Tim Harford, 50 Inventions That Shape the Modern Economy. And by the way, if there's a book out there that you think we should be covering that has a great story, and it doesn't have to be a new book, a book you've never read before is a new book. 
Send your suggestions to ouramericannetwork.org and we'll get on it. And we love talking to authors who can tell stories about stuff that we either didn't know or thought we knew. Tim Harford's stories, 50 Inventions That Shaped the Modern Economy, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and now it's time for our American Dreamer series. And we've done a whole bunch on a whole bunch of types of people, but every once in a while it's about a musician. And by the way, our music hours have included everything from Frank Sinatra to Tom Petty to Kirk Cobain, Miles Davis, John Denver, Greg Allman, Vladimir Horowitz, John Paul White, Merle Haggard, Chris Stapleton, my favorite Aretha Franklin and Carol King, Chuck Berry, and of course Johnny Cash. And I don't think you'll be able to figure out what our musical preference is by that list, because we love it all. And this story, well, Alex Cortez brings us the life story of a number one selling female recording artist and the number one in history, with over 200 million record sales worldwide. Take it away, Alex. Connie Francis liked to record songs, just not her most important one. Sorry now. I didn't want to do Who's Sorry Now. My father was after me for a year and a half to do Who's Sorry Now. I said, when was that thing written anyway? He said, 1923. I said, the kids at American Bandstand will left me right off the show, Daddy. He said, if you don't sing this damn song, the only way you'll ever get on American Bandstand is if you sit on top of the television set. So I didn't want to do the song, and I saved it for last, and I dragged out the other song so I wouldn't have time for Who's Sorry Now. But there were 16 minutes left on the session, and my father said, you got 16 minutes left? Sing the damn song. So I sang it like I didn't care. And that's how I developed my own style. And when she finished recording that song that she didn't like, there were only a few seconds left on the tape. That's how things worked back then. And as the relatively unknown Connie Francis thought would happen, the song also went unnoticed. At first, but on January 1st, 1958, it debuted on Dick Clark's American Bandstand. Miss Connie Francis, who's going on? It would sell over one million copies going to number one on the charts in the UK, number four in the US, and for the next four years, she was voted the best female vocalist by American Bandstand viewers. She was only 19 years old, and she was a worldwide star. Not that her parents would treat her that way. I remember after Who's Sorry Now, it was a big hit. My mother one night said, take out the garbage. And I said, I, I don't have to take out the garbage anymore. I'm a star now. She said, I'll make you see stars. <laughs> so I would never get a big hit. She would see me writing in my diary. And she said, you're writing in your diary again? What do you have to write about? You're not that important. She said that to you? Yes. <laughs> That's a pretty good humbling thing. 
<laughs> do, do you thank her for, for uh, doing yes. that? No. Yes, I do. <laughs> her mom wasn't really into her music career, but her dad sure was. Italian home in that generation, all Italian girls with Italian fathers who were living had to play the accordion. It was like a rite of passage. So my dad had an old broken down concertina that his dad had brought with him from Italy. And every night he would play me songs on the concertina. And he asked me, do you want to take accordion lessons or piano lessons? I was three. So I said accordion like a dope. Who could afford a piano anyway? And so uh, at the age of four, I gave my first concert. And I sang Anchors Away and O Sole Mio. You know, I have a three-year-old myself, and I just couldn't imagine them starting yes. to learn the accordion at that age. <laughs> the accordion was bigger than I was. But it was a great big stage at Olympic Amusement Park in Irvington, New Jersey. And I was four years old, and when I heard the sound of the applause, it was like a magical sound I've never forgotten. And I've been addicted to the roar of the crowd ever since. Can you really remember that age? I'm I'm forgetting what the exact science is, but isn't it something like at age two or three, you know, you don't remember anything before then. Um, So I'm just curious how vivid your memories are. I remember it were yesterday. Do you remember being nervous before? No, I wasn't nervous at all. I was very eager to get up on that stage. (laughs) Music was always there in her Italian neighborhood that's called the Italian Down Neck in Newark, New Jersey. And what was also ever-present was food. Well, food was a pagan ritual to Italians. I mean, they would refer to food as beautiful and nice. Look at that nice piece of pork butt. Have a sit down, I'll make you a beautiful sandwich. Oh, done. Wait till you taste this cocoa, man. Your mouth in your mouth. They call it communion. <laughs> Everything was about food. They could be enjoying the most delicious meal, 12-course meal, and they'll talk about something they ate last week or something they're going to eat the next week. And at age 10, she was on a children's show for a whole year. And at this point, she was going by her full legal name, Conchera Franconero. But by age 12, when she appeared on the show Talent Scouts, Hosted by a giant, Arthur Godfrey, things would change. He was having a hard time pronouncing Frank and Arrow, so he said, come over here, little girl. He said, how do you pronounce your name again? So I said, Franco Nero, as if teaching him a foreign language. And he said, wow, he said, that's a toughie. Why don't we give you a good old, easy to pronounce Irish name? Like, let's see. Like, what about Francis? And I said, oh, Mr. Godfrey, please, my father will have kittens. Can you please just try to say Connie Frankenero tonight and tomorrow? I'll ask him if I can be Connie. What's that name again? <laughs> Francis. Connie Francis first got signed by MGM Records, and what hooked them was her demo song, Freddie. It was a silly little ditty. It was a squeaky song. Freddie, I know that you've been seeing Daisy. Freddie, like that. You have a standing invitation. MGM's Harry Meyerson liked the song, largely because it was the name of his son, whom he could give it to for his birthday. That is no joke. That's the real story of how Connie Francis first got signed. Then came Who's Sorry Now, and then the scary realization 
where is my next hit going to come from? Could this all be over soon? And when we come back, more on the life of Connie Francis here on Our American Dreamers Stories. And what a story this is. More after these messages. Our American Stories, and we return to Alex's feature with Connie Francis. And when they left off, she was only 19 years old and had her first monster hit with Who's Sorry Now? But would she have another one? Donnie Kirshner, and he was a publisher, with a broken-down office and a broken desk and a broken chair. And he called me and he said, I have two kids, they're phenomenal. They're great songwriters. I said, everybody has great songwriters. So... He said, no, these kids are really great, Connie. One of them goes to Juilliard on a scholarship. That was Neil. Neil Sadaka. And the other one is a gopher, a music publishing company, but they've got great talent. So they came to my house, and we were living in a dilapidated house. I mean, it was, when Who's Sorry Now hit, we had lost our middle-class home. We were living in a rented apartment in Newark. It was so depressing. There was wooden floors and i get splinters in my feet when I was ever stupid enough to walk without shoes. And Neil nudged Howie in the, in, with his elbow, like, look at this place. So they played me song after song after song, and it was all beautiful music, but it was too educated. I said, I don't think you guys are going to make it in this business. I said, the kids don't dig this kind of stuff anymore. Don't you have something a little more lively? And suddenly Howie said, play her that song that we gave to the Shepherd Sisters this morning. And Neil said, no, Howie, she'll be insulted. She's a classy singer. They were whispering back and forth. So I said, play the song already, whatever it is. I'm, I'm, I'm tired. I want to go to bed. i got to write my diary yet. So I was on my belly, writing on my diary and listening with half an ear. And then he, Neil played, stupid Cupid, you're a real mean guy. I'd like to clip your wings so you can't fly. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. You guys got my next record, Stupid Cupid, hit title. Stupid Cupid, you're a real mean guy. I'd like to clip your wings so you can't fly. Stupid Cupid would reach number 14 on the Billboard chart and became her second number one single in the UK. And it was something else of a year. Or Connie Francis. You had mentioned that they had come to your house and you guys were kind of down on your luck. You had lost your home. Can you tell us more of that story of, of what was going on with your family? Well, my father put all of his business into a bleach that they sold only to Italian housewives. And he lost a $15,000 fortune and our house. My father, who never took a chance, took a chance. And I always look back. The end of 57... I was taking shorthand and typing in my Aunt Marie's office. The end of 58, I was voted the world's number one female vocalist. Following this success, she followed another idea from her dad, who might have flopped in his own career, but not in hers. And theirs was a complicated relationship. 
Well, it was a love, I can't say hate, but it was a love-resentment relationship. It was very combustible. We fought over macaroni and cheese and cheese and macaroni. We fought over everything. But at four years old, I was singing a solo neo in Italian and English. So, um, and then he encouraged me. When I was 14, we used to read the newspapers from cover to cover every, every day. Every night when he came home from work, he was a roofer. And he was, uh, you know, he had a little broken down roofing truck. But he was very smart, and he would read anything he got his hands on. And we would read the newspapers from cover to cover every single night. And when I was 14 years old, he said to me, Connie, someday if you ever do make it on records, and that's a long shot, believe me, it's a long shot. But if you ever do, I want you to think about singing songs in foreign languages, especially in Japanese and German, because aside from England, they're going to be our two biggest allies. And you can make more friends through your music than all the phony politicians in Washington put together. So that's what I remembered. When I did make it on records, I started recording in foreign languages. I did most of my singles in five or six languages. And the first foreign language album that her father recommended was in their native Italian and of the favorite songs of that language. Connie went to the famous Abbey Road Studios in London, the Abbey Road Studios where the Beatles recorded, and came out with the album... Connie Francis sings Italian favorites, which remained on the charts for 81 weeks, peaking at number four. And to this day, it's Connie's most successful album. And its single Mama would reach the number eight chart position in the U.S. and number two in the U.K. Connie would record seven more of these favorites albums, including in... Yiddish, a language she actually learned as a young kid. Three years old, we moved in with my grandma. We lived there for two years. And if you weren't Italian in that neighborhood, you needed a passport to get in. Then when I was five years old, we moved to an all-Jewish neighborhood. And in that place, if you weren't Jewish, you needed a passport to get in. And so I learned a lot of Yiddish. It's a very comical language. It's sarcastic and it's comical. I think I knew more Yiddish than all the bar mitzvah boys I ever dated put together. And their parents would get such a kick out of it because I would speak to them in in their colloquial language. How how did you learn it? I learned it from listening to all the Jewish people in my neighborhood. And how old were you when, when you learned it as well? Five years old. Wow. And you're just joking about needing a passport to get in. You mean that? I'm just joking. <laughs> yeah, you were an illegal alien if you weren't Jewish in my neighborhood. I mean, do you remember any kind of conflicts of your, your first experiences? Um, you know, any, any brushback that you got from people before you knew Yiddish and before they accepted you? Oh, they accepted me all right. The, the Jewish people have been among my biggest fans, even till today. I did record an album of Yiddish songs, and it was the best-selling Yiddish album, uh, Jewish album ever made. And of the languages outside of English, there was a clear favorite of Connie's. Japanese was the easiest language to sing of them all, because it has no sound, no sound that isn't within the English language. There's no rolling R's, there's no uh, guttural sound, like in German and in Yiddish. I would record a song in 10 minutes in Japanese. 
I've never heard anyone say that before. That's really interesting. You probably never interviewed anybody who sang in Japanese before. <laughs> You're right, Connie. And even foreigners who weren't supposed to hear Connie's music, like the people trapped in the Soviet Union, did. If anyone was caught with my recordings, they could go to prison or, or death. Um, I did a radio show on Radio Luxembourg, which was a clear channel 50,000 watt station, which went behind the Iron Curtains. Uh, there were 15 million listeners a day. And it went all to the, all the countries behind the Iron Curtain and even into Tunisia and Morocco. And I did the, that show, 15-minute show, every week from New York and would send it into Radio Luxembourg. So the first time I went to East Germany, I was standing in front of a record store and they sold only classical music. Uh, pop music was, not, was banned. And I heard uh, the song, O Calcutta. Come in. There were two teenage boys standing there, about 16 years old. And I said, uh, do you like American music? And they said, nein, nein. No, no. I said to them in German. And I said, do you, do you, um, well, what's that, where's that music coming from? And they started to run away. And I said, my name is Connie Francis. And they went crazy because they, they had heard my, my radio shows and they, they heard my music in German. And they went crazy. They couldn't believe it. And then they became very animated. I said, do you like American music? They said, yeah, yeah, you know. It was very exciting. It was on a one-day trip to East Berlin, which was a horrible thing. And there was yet another thing that Connie was a part of and would lead to some boundary breaking her title track for the movie where the boys are would reach number four on the charts and the fort lauderdale florida-based movie would introduce the concept of spring break and it caught on a little too immediately when i went to do the movies well fort lauderdale was a prairie it was kept in control by only seven patrol cars in the entire city that was the police force when where the boys are was released in December and January of Christmas time at Radio City Music Hall and at the Gateway Theater down here in Fort Lauderdale. Fifty thousand kids inundated Fort Lauderdale and they had to call in the National Guard, they had to call in the Coast Guard, I ninety five was a parking lot and and kids were sleeping on the beach and, and uh lots of kids were arrested. One kid was arrested for singing the Star Spangled Banner in the nude on top of a flagpole and Newsweek covered the story and it was the biggest thing ever to happen in Broward County. My goodness, what storytelling. And when we come back, more of this amazing life, this remarkable singer, our American Dreamer series. Connie Francis's life, her story, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and now the final portion of this great American Dreamers feature on the life of Connie Francis. 
Connie Francis has truly lived the American dream. But not every chapter of her story has been bright. In 1974, while appearing at the Westbury Music Fair in New York, she was raped at a Howard Johnson motel, and she nearly suffocated to death under the weight of a heavy mattress that the culprit had thrown upon her. She sued the motel chain for failing to provide adequate security and reportedly won a $2.5 million judgment. It was one of the largest such judgments in history and led to improvements in security measures across the hotel industry. Connie would also use this horrific experience and make something positive out of it. But not immediately. It wasn't positive for seven years. I didn't grant an interview, and I, and I didn't... Uh, I was a recluse until my brother was murdered, and then my brother's murder became my resurrection. I, I could no longer wallow in self-pity. And all during those seven years, I would receive thousands of letters from rape victims and victims of all violent crime. And I couldn't do anything about it, and I decided that I was going to do something about it. So I wrote the White House, I wrote the Reagan administration, and I was granted my own commission to fight violent crime. I wrote a Crime Victims' Bill of Rights, which was ratified by the International Association of Chiefs of Police, and I still have to get it into the precincts, which I intend to do someday. I had laws changed called the Earnest Resistance Law in New York, where a victim had to show forcible resistance to a rape before she could even prosecute the rapist. I had that law repealed. And I was responsible for a law called Proposition 8 in California. Not the one to repeal gay marriage, but a Proposition 8, which was the toughest anti-crime bill ever passed in California. And within one year, violent crime was reduced by 12%. What an incredible, strong, focused, and determined woman. Connie mentioned her brother's murder in bringing her back out into the public. What happened? My brother was an assistant district attorney, and when he left that position, he was an attorney for the unions. And he cooperated with the government against dental clinics that were being built by the unions. And he cooperated with the government, and they murdered him. And to this day, I have not recovered from that. How close were you guys in age? Two and a half years. He was younger than I was. I asked Connie, how did she find some semblance of healing after such two awful events? And how about in the aftermath in terms of how to, you know, try to... How to cope with it. I'm a very poor example of how to cope with it because I didn't cope with it well at all. Uh, but I did keep a diary, and I think writing things down helps you a lot. And I have a, had a lot of good girlfriends. Uh, I had five or six very close girlfriends, and also my sense of humor. I never lost my sense of humor, and I think that's what pulled me through everything. I find humor in everything, even in mental hospitals. Huh. What kind of humor have you found there? Well, I found a doctor who headed the Mummer's Day Parade was dressed as Cleopatra. (laughs) 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 It was one thing. Then they said to me, 
we, uh, you have, I said, wait a minute. They, they wrote down Peggy Smith uh, on my admittance. And I said, wait a minute, I'm not Peggy Smith. I'm Connie Francis. And they said, no, we do that to protect your identity. I said, I want people to know where I am. I want my name. No, it's hospital procedure. You have to be Peggy Smith. I said, look, I've been in show business all my life. and I'm under the delusion that I'm a star. So if you give me the name Peggy Lee Smith, I'll go along with that. So they said, okay. <laughs> to close, I asked Connie about some of her greatest regrets and fulfillments in her career, including not marrying Bobby Mac the Knife Darren, who started out his career as a songwriter for her. And when Connie's father learned that Darren wanted to elope after one of her shows, he ran Darren out of the building at gunpoint, telling him to never see his daughter again. He would have, my father would have killed us. Well, he would have killed Bobby. And people say throughout the years, why didn't you hook up with Bobby later on after you were both successful? Because I was always afraid of his heart. My father had this pathological hatred for him that lasted until the day he died. Was there anything against him personally that he had? Well, he was male to begin with. So just the fact of another man taking taking his daughter? (laughs) Yeah. So it could have been any male. But especially Bobby. What I did resent was my father's control of my life, and I still resent it to this day. And in the dedication to my book, I write, although my father was inarguably the architect of my brilliant career, he was also the source of my greatest personal pain. A career where she also found deep meaning. What's Connie, what's been the most fulfilling part of your career for you? I think entertaining the troops in Vietnam. I came back a different person, a much more serious person. And I was appalled at the way our veterans were treated when they came home from that war. Because to me, everyone who was there was a hero. What did you see in Vietnam that surprised you? The, the horrible. The MACV hospitals where they could perform any uh, kind of surgery, save for neurosurgery. And I would go to those first and speak to the guys and 18-year-old kids, the average age of a Vietnam veteran, crying in the night for their mothers. Um, Was that even a controversial decision to go over there, period? I'm sure some artists were so against the war that they probably wouldn't even go. I was against the war, too. I supported Richard Nixon because he told me personally in his apartment that he had planned to end the war. That's the reason I supported him in 68, and I sang the campaign song. I was terribly against the war, but I wasn't against our troops, and I felt that they needed a touch of home, and it was the most gratifying experience of my life. Well, I went by myself. I didn't go with a troop or anything. Um, You know, like Bob Hope, they'd stay at the Thailand Hilton, and they would fly in and do a show and then fly out. I went to all the boondocks. I wanted to see what the, what, 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 was, what the war was really all about. Connie Francis, a patriot, a child star, a worldwide star, an advocate for victims, an American dreamer. And what a story. Great job on that, Alex and Joey. I don't think it gets better than that. 
I was against the war, but I wasn't against the troops. It was the most gratifying experience of my life, she said about entertaining the troops in Vietnam, and it was the most serious thing I ever did. She also said this about her dad. My father was the architect of my career, but also the greatest source of my pain. And that's why we love doing these stories about singers and artists. And I think that's why we're drawn to them. They share openly their pain, their wounds, and that's a hard thing to do. And they do it. And it's raw and it's real. And my goodness, what raw, real storytelling by Connie Francis. And by the way, ouramericannetwork.org is where you can find our storytelling on Frank Sinatra, on Merle Haggard, the Aretha Franklin Carol King story, remarkable, Chuck Berry, Johnny Cash's story will kill you, Miles Davis too. But this past hour, the life of Connie Francis, her story celebrated here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we've all heard of gunslingers Wild Bill Hickok, Doc Holliday, and Billy the Kid. These three quick-draw legends got nothing on the guy we're about to meet. Here's Greg Hengler with a story. We all know the classic cowboy film story where the bad guy shows up in town and picks a fight with the good guy. Well, you wouldn't want to pick a gunfight with the good guy you're about to meet. After all, if gunslinger Bob Munden would have existed in the Wild West, he would have simply been called Death. Bob Munden is one of the great characters in all the shooting sports. If you don't believe me, just ask him. I'm not perfect. Like I tell people all the time in jest, I'm not perfect. I'm just the closest thing you're going to get to it. And that's what I tell them, you know, and all in jest, of course, and I have fun with it. All jokes aside, Bob is the most decorated, fast-draw competitor of all time, a feat that earned him the title, the fastest gun who ever lived. It takes a human three-tenths of a second to blink. Bob can draw, cock, fire from his hip, it's called instinctive shooting, and reholster faster than an eye can blink. I first realized I, was, I had this ability when I first started shooting competition on electronic timers. The speed of my draw, to, to the mechanics of drawing and firing the gun, is uh, a one and three quarters, one hundredths of one second, or less than one half of one half of one tenth of one second, or just fast, whatever's easy for you to say. Here's Bob being interviewed at one of his fast draw competitions in 1986. 
You are known as one of the fastest gunslingers in the world. Yeah, well, as I, I'm listed in the Guinness Book of World Records as the fastest man with a gun who ever lived. Oh. There, there are 18 world records you can hold in this sport. I hold all 18 and have since 1960. Okay, now how, how do you compare to some of the, you know, the old Wild West heroes that we hear about and see on movies and stuff like that? And, uh, you know, how, uh, how they used to have, like, duels and draw against each other and... Well, as I said, I mean, there's not one incident recorded in history where two men faced off and drew guns at one another. The movies created fast -by. It never happened in real life. Really? Mm -hmm. You mean no, no two guys went out there and decided to do that ever? No. Oh, I see. Shot. So it's a fabrication of the movies. How, huh? how, did, how did Bill Hickok die? I think it was shot in the back. That's the way they all died. I've taken what, they, what the movies have created, and I've built a show around it. And I have pushed it. We've made a science of it. Fast draw is the fastest thing a human being does. Nobody does anything faster than what I do with guns. Can you give it a comparison to something that would come close but is not as fast? Speed of light, which is far beyond it. Right. There is nothing next to it. Now you say, no way you talk about it. I said, well, I mean, and then I have to show you. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, the fastest gun in the world right here. In 2010, the 68-year-old Munden was tested by sports physiologist David Sandler, who is an expert in human movement and has studied the world's fastest people. Here's David. Yeah, basically we have a couple different kinds of accelerometers that we're going to place on Bob's hand. And so as Bob goes through the range of motion, we're going to pick up the actual acceleration of his hand and be able to determine velocity from that. We have the ability to measure in thousands of a second, so uh, hopefully we can, we can catch what's right. happening. You know, the human eye can't keep up with anything no, like no. that. No, no way. Ready? And three, two, one, go. Wow. Wow. That was incredible. So what's happening is your hand, when you do that pop, the max acceleration peak registers up here. And you reach nearly 10 G of acceleration with your hand. Okay, what that means uh, in normal language is uh, it's incredibly fast. G stands for the force of gravity on Earth. Fighter pilots are tested to withstand a maximum of nine Gs. But Bob's muscles, for a fraction of a second, are generating 10 Gs of force. But more incredibly, the results show that Bob can draw cock fire and reholster his gun faster than the reaction time in the average human brain. Human, human reaction is around two-tenths of a second. The whole, the actual action lasted less than a tenth of a second. No way. What's that comparable to? Well, I've actually measured rattlesnakes before, and uh, he is faster than a rattlesnake. Looks like around six hundredths of a second to make the actual uh, movement itself, which is remarkable. I mean, unbelievable speed. But Bob wants to prove he's not only superhuman with his speed, but also with his accuracy. He sets up two targets six feet apart and attempts to hit both faster than the blink of an eye. Listen closely. He does it so quickly that you will not be able to hear two distinctive shots. Oh, yeah, I'm gonna bring the gun up, fire two shots, one for each target as fast as I can. Wow. And the gun must be cocked and fired for each shot. Yeah, so you gotta cock it, bang, cock it. Aim yep, again, right. cock it, and bang. Yep. That was absolutely incredible. That was amazing. 
That was phenomenal. Two shots. I only heard one. Did you hear another one? I only heard one shot. That is amazing. That is unbelievable. And even on this graph, the shots even look kind of like one. I've never seen anything like this. Two shots in under a tenth of a second. A remarkable feat of dexterity and hand-eye control. Uh, just incredible. He, he is superhuman. I mean, bottom line is uh, he exceeds what every other human on this planet can do. So, you know, by definition, that would make him superhuman. But Bob doesn't work as a solo act. Wherever he is, so is his wife, Becky, also a world champion shooter. The two are married in 1964 after a three-month courtship. My life has revolved around my wife, my wife, Becky. I don't do anything without her. And I can't, I, can't, I don't even want to do anything without her. After winning every fast draw competition multiple times, Bob sought out new challenges. So Bob and Becky began performing together beginning in 1968, emphasizing the importance of gun safety. Here's Becky remembering the early days when they first started to tour with their fast draw trick shot show. Started traveling, uh, performing in 1969. So it's been quite a few years, and we uh, started out in a uh, station wagon, and we had our two daughters with us, four years old and two years old, and uh, we put them in the back with their toys, and we had all of our equipment in the middle seat, you know, and then uh, we were in the front, and we did school assembly programs. Becky may be the only person who can keep Bob in check. I, I guess that's why I'm around, too. <laughs> uh, humble him a little bit once in a while so he's, you know, his, uh, his hat doesn't get too tight. The Mundans have performed in convention centers, malls, and car dealerships. We've done shows at um, amusement parks in uh, New Jersey and New York, and they had no idea that you could shoot a gun and not kill somebody. I mean, really, it's astounding, but they're out there. So uh, we're, we're able to talk to people and, and maybe uh, soften the image of the, of the handgun. We're proud that uh, we can represent the shooting sports in our own way and maybe introduce them to people that don't even know they're out there. After years of traveling, the Mundans spend less time on the road and more time in their Butte, Montana home. This open land is the perfect place for the California natives to do what they do. Well, first of all, we got the freedom to do what we do. There's nobody saying, well, you can't do this, can't do that. California, if it's not illegal, it costs you, as an example. Whether it's trick shooting or gunslinging, Bob learned early on he would need the right equipment to keep up with his talents. Bob would get this equipment by building it himself, custom-made Colt 45 single-action revolvers. This skill would become Bob's second career. So through the process of trial and error, changing the gun around, the lock system and so on, then I learned how to build guns for my own purpose first. And then other people started to ask me to do their guns because my guns were so efficient. Those other people include fellow shooters and celebrities like Kurt Russell, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and Randy Travis. Piece by piece, part by part, Bob files, grinds, and trims nearly every piece of the Colt until he can dry fire the gun without any friction or flaws in the action. But when they come out of the factory, remember the factories, their job is just to get them where they work safely and uh, right out of the factory. But that doesn't mean they work right. It doesn't mean they're, they're, just, they're just guns that are, that are production guns. When I pick up a gun, I pick it up and I think, 
well, you've got some problems here. I kind of feel like a doctor, a surgeon. When I pick up a gun, I say, well, okay, baby, you've got problems, but I'm going to fix you. I'm going to make you perfect. Until his death from a heart attack on December 10th, 2012, 70-year-old Bob Munden was in his shop on a regular basis doing action and trigger work on single actions, Smith & Wesson double actions, and Bond Derringers. A public celebration at Butte Gun Club for Bob Munden took place on Saturday, June 12, 2013. A six-gun salute began at high noon, in keeping with the tradition in Western movies. Under a beautiful sky, Bob's wife of almost 50 years started things off by stepping up to the firing line and fanning off five rounds. Family members and special guests used single-action revolvers to complete the 70-shot salute, one for every year of Bob's life. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job on that, Greg. The fastest gun who ever lived. Bob Munden's story here on Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our free newsletter. You'll get the best five stories each week. Again, that's ouramericannetwork.org.